it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan. It's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmead. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmead Show. So glad you're here. We have a big hour coming your way. Marco Rubio will be with us. Talk about the need to take down TikTok and how the administration's only pretending to do it. And Jerry Baker standing by for the Wall Street Journal, editor-at-large for the Wall Street Journal, as I mentioned, and host of the Wall Street Journal-at-large on Fridays on FBN. Uh, we have a lot to discuss today. The president's going to be unveiling his budget at 2 o'clock, which leads me to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. There needs to be a, an individual who is dedicated to do the decompression strategy for the federal government. It is often stated that it's the role of the VP. That's too much in her portfolio to be focused on just doing that decompression strategy. Right. Add Eric Adams to the list of VP critics as he blasts the state of our border and the czar in charge as uh, infestation as the invasion continues and the Americans getting murdered and kidnapped to push Congress to get on the attack. Yep. And a drug fueled rings in Mexico are the target. Number two. For over 160,000 Afghans, our nation has failed to live up to this promise. The withdrawal was a catastrophe, in my opinion, and there was an inexcusable lack of accountability. Uh, Lefty investigations. Examination begin as Biden's two years in the White House is under scrutiny, finally focusing on Afghanistan and the horrific uh, dismount there and the origin of the China virus, which he's not even curious about. We're going to look at the facts from the people that lived them. Number one. The White House says the new budget will zero in on expanding the economy, lowering costs, protecting Social Security and Medicare, and it will also reduce deficit by $3 trillion over the next decade. Wow, that sounds good. Dead in arrival. Thank goodness. I'm talking about the president's budget formally rolled out today, jammed with tax increases and green dreams. We're going to look at where the focus should be. Uh, and with me right now is uh, Jerry Baker. Jerry, welcome back. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me. So you know the problem with our country's rich people before we talk about the race. And that's why they're going to get their tax rate jacked up from 37 to 40 percent. Because let's take more money from the most successful people in our country. That's the problem. Yeah, it's not working, is it, Brian? I mean, that, that's exactly the the democratic strategy and has been for a long time, which is essentially to say we can massively expand the state. We can massively expand all of the things the federal government does, as they've been trying to do, and they've done over the last, particularly over the last couple of years. Uh, and somehow it's all going to be paid for by uh, a tiny, tiny sliver of the population. Now they have been doing that, and as we know, that the the proportion of uh, total tax taken, uh, you know, from the top one percent, the proportion of total tax paid by the one percent, um, is 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 high and has been rising for. Uh, for years, and if you take, I think the top five percent pay more than fifty percent of the total total tax take. The problem is, Brian, you can't, you just can't keep doing that. You can't keep taking, expropriating uh, money from these from people. Look, we, the, the tax system is progressive. We all understand that, and it's important that it is. We, people who've done well 
uh, do have uh, a responsibility to look after, uh, you know, to, to, to help to, to pay more uh, than others. But you can't just keep squeezing them like that because they aren't, in the end, going to be able to produce the wealth that is absolutely necessary to produce the revenue that you need to do the things that you want to do. So this demo- so this, this equation that Democrats have come up with and Biden is going to repeat today in his budget that somehow you can just keep taking more and more money from the from the wealth creators in the country is just it just doesn't add up. And by the way, you can also add to that the fact that we've got massive deficits now. So that so even so they're trying to they're trying to spend all this money uh, by and and pay for it through a combination of enormous borrowing at a time when interest rates are extremely high, and supposedly squeezing more money out of. Uh, out of the wealth creators. It just won't work. If you earn $400,000, the tax te- the top rate will go from 37 to 40. If earning $1 million, the tax rate increases on long-term investments. Isn't that interesting? From 20% to 39.6%. If you work in a corporation, have a corporation, 21% is the rate right now, which is competitive worldwide. It was with 35. He's going to jack it up to 28%. So uh, if earning less than 400,000 hours, uh, he says tax rates will remain the same. So that's how he plans on doing it. But the interesting thing for Republicans, they're not getting the, the rich corporations paying them. They're not getting the rich individuals supporting them. So I almost feel like I think on the right, they're thinking to themselves, hey, you guys go fight it out. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, it, you know, again, it's it's dishonest. It's it's a it's dishonest accounting to think that you can that you can you can achieve these uh, the, the, the what you want to achieve without without having a contribution paid for by a much larger proportion of the population. And there's one other thing too. It's not only is it dishonest accounting and it doesn't in the end add up. It's also very undemocratic and and very dangerous. I think for democracy. If you have you have a situation now, I think Brian, I'm not I'm not sure of the absolute details of these numbers, but the broader outline is correct. You have a situation where something like, I think, half the population pays basically no federal income tax at all. So what you're getting is you'll get, and, and, and many of those people benefit, obviously, from, they all benefit from federal income tax, from federal spending, whether it's defense or whether it's, um, you know, in terms of entitlement spending or, or, or some of the other uh, government spending that, that they get. So it's you have this situation where a growing proportion of population, over half the population, is getting government benefits without contributing anything. So it's no wonder, and, and they're voters, right? They, they get to vote. So it's no wonder that they keep they, they can they can they will vote. This is what Democrats want. They want they they know that those people will vote for them because they're not paying anything towards actually the services, the government services that are being provided. Uh, but they're receiving all of the benefits. So it's really yeah. it's very dangerously undemocratic, and it's something. So I think it's it's some you know as you said the. The president's budget is always dead on arrival. We've got a Republican-controlled House of Representatives, uh, you know, very small Democratic majority in the Senate. This, none of this will get actually into passed into law, but it will set the debate stage for the next couple of years, and obviously for the presidential election. And that's the kind of right. that's the kind of plan that Democrats will go into the next election with. All right, so let's talk about your column, uh, "Free Expression: DeSantis versus Trump Pits Accomplishments Against Narrative." This is going to be an epic battle. I was with Ron DeSantis yesterday, the governor, and. Uh, I think he's set to go in about two months should something else happen, not happen. But I think Trump has proven to be much more formidable than his critics and his supporters even thought. Wouldn't you agree? 
Totally, yeah. Look, a few months ago, Trump was being written off. He had that kind of bad run. Uh, the midterm elections didn't go very well, and he was blamed, I think, rightly for, for some of that, for a significant amount of that. Then he had the sort of weird uh, interlude involving Kanye West and that white supremacist, and then he said some strange things. People were starting to say, you know, and by the way, Ron DeSantis obviously came out of the Florida re-election uh, gubernatorial, his re-election as governor of Florida, incredibly strong. People started to say, you know, Trump has faded, and, you know, it's it's it's, it's uh, he's a busted flush. But, yeah, you're absolutely right. He's come out uh, in the last month or so, I think, looking particularly strong. I thought his performance last week at CPAC, look, that's a very friendly audience for him, but I thought he, you know, that was he, he was he was back on form verbally, rhetorically. Uh, you know, he came across very persuasively. Look, the, 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 what I wrote in my column this week, Brian, is DeSantis is going to run on a record of accomplishment in Florida of achieving all the things that modern Republicans, modern conservatives want to achieve. That's, you know, economic freedom, freedom from government authority. You know, he's going to run on his COVID record and the way Florida dealt with that. He's going to run on taking on woke corporations and on challenging the progressive march through the institutions that we've seen over the last 20, 30 years. It's a strong record. It's a record of accomplishment. The question is, is it going to be enough to persuade people? Because I think in the Republican primary, I'm not sure people are going to be focused on their record of accomplishment. They're going to they're, they're looking instead. They feel angry still about the state of the nation. Many of them feel wrongly, in my view, but many think the 2020 election was stolen. But even if they don't, even beyond that, they feel that people are not speaking up for them, are not looking out for them, are not their voice, are not their. Uh, not their representation. And of course, the one person who does that brilliantly is Donald Trump. So so I think you've got, you know, uh, you've got DeSantis trying to make his case on the basis of, look what I've done uh, as governor of Florida for the last four years. I've got this incredible record of achievement. I'm doing all the things that you wanted to do. And you've got Trump out there. By the way, I'm not, this is not to say that Trump didn't achieve anything as president. It's just that he's not running on that. He's, Trump's not running on having cut taxes and got the economy. He says, I'm your redemption. I'm your retribution with retribution. the phrase, right? I'm, you know, yeah, yeah. He's running on that. He's running on this very personal message to uh, voters who feel, you know, ignored, disenfranchised, held by held in contempt by the media and by the elites in this country. He's running on a story, on a message, a story, a very powerful, compelling narrative, Brian, against against uh, DeSantis, who's going to be running on a more kind of almost like sort of, you know, a, a, almost a technocratic record of achievement. And I think the story, the story, the message in, connects with people emotionally much better than the hard record of, uh, you know, legislation or regulation or the other achievement, the, the executive achievements that, uh, that, that Ron DeSantis has. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I want you to hear what Governor Sununu said and tell me if this – I actually think he'll be a formidable candidate. Let's see if the market's there. Cut 41. As far as former President Trump, I think he's going to run, obviously. He's in the race. He's not going to be the nominee. That's just not going to happen. Um, and so I think there's a lot of opportunity to bring forward what the, the Republican Party, not what we were, not yesterday's leadership or yesterday's story um, or, or crying about what happened in November of 22, but what we're going to bring to the table and get done tomorrow. That's what America's looking for. And so right now, if the election were today, Ron DeSantis would win in New Hampshire. But there was a new poll, Emerson poll, that comes out. It has uh, Trump up by about 30 on Ron DeSantis today. So what about Governor Sununu and people that you've talked to in the past? He's a successful governor who would run different than DeSantis and is uh, opposed to Trump. Yeah, I don't. Again, look, I, 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 I've got tremendous regard for, for Sununu. He's been a very he's, he's, he's had a, he's got he's also got a strong record of achievement. I yeah. think he's a good, uh, reliable conservative. But again, I'm just 
I'm skeptical about about anybody. Look, if, if anybody's going to run on a record of state level achievement, nobody beats Ron DeSantis, right? I mean, it, it, that's what they're looking for. Florida's a big state. It's a, it's a it was a purple state. He's basically he's 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 turned it you know he's turned it red, deep red, and he's done so by doing all of the things that, that conservatives want to achieve. So, you know, if you're looking for someone with that kind of a record uh, in an important swing state, powerful state, then I, that, that nobody, nobody comes close to Ron DeSantis. But again, right. and I think what, what, what Chris Sununu gets wrong there about, about Trump is he's talking about people looking back to the past and we want to move on to the future. And of course we do. But that's not – I mean, and of course, by the way, Trump is obsessed with the 2020 election and how it was stolen from him. So he's going to talk a lot about that. But I don't think that matters to people so much. I don't think they're thinking, oh, you know what, let's move beyond the 2020 election. It's, it, it's his ability to channel that resentment that people feel, that frustration that feel, they, they, the alienation they feel from so much much of what they see going on in this country and the ability to channel that and to be right. there, as he says, their retribution, their vessel, the vessel for their resentments, their anger, their emotional. Well, he's um, definitely their, that. Their, the their, question their is, Jerry, feelings. can he can he do it beyond beyond the Republican Party, beyond his base? Can he win exactly. over moderates uh, like Ron DeSantis did in Florida, uh, like he did in 2016? So here's what Mike Pompeo said. If you, cho- I always like this because I think you do too. You want to see what the attack plan is. The attack plan is spending. Donald Trump is not better than, than any Democrat. Listen. We are $31 trillion in the hole. We've got to begin to grow the economy, build it back with lower taxes. And when we do that and grow our economy, we'll get it right back right. It's going to take a true conservative leader, Shannon. Are you saying that President Trump wasn't a true conservative leader? $6 trillion more in debt. Uh, that's never that's never the right direction for the country. So that's interesting, correct? Separate me yeah. from Trump yeah. on that. I don't think that cuts through, Brian. No. To be honest with you, I, I, you know, I just don't think. But look, I think people think again until I, mean, I think we have a huge fiscal problem in this country, and we need to deal with it. And and there's no question. By the way, it got worse under Trump. As it, uh, it's got much worse under. It's got worse under. It got worse under Trump and under Biden, partly to do with COVID and other things. But we've got massive amounts of debt, and it needs to be dealt with. I just don't think that has the kind of political saliency that maybe Mike Pompeo think, thinks it does. And again, you know, people are, that that to me harks back. To a kind of conservatism, Brian, that you know, you and I remember very well, and actually like very well, a kind of Reagan era. Well, Reagan pushed up deficits too, but but that idea of you know, conservatives are for fiscal prudence, for sort of rectitude, for being good stewards of government, doing all of those things, you know, shrinking the government, making, letting people. I don't think that stuff really resonates with people right now. I think they want to hear um, what they want to hear. Frankly, is the kind of stuff that Donald Trump is telling them. But I think you're absolutely absolutely right. That I don't know that, that, that it's very doubtful whether that Trump message, which appeals so much to the Republican base, whether it goes whether whether it appeals to moderates. I don't think it does. I think he scares a lot of people. I think he turns off a lot of women, uh, a lot of particularly suburban women uh, who would maybe vote for Ron DeSantis, would maybe vote for Mike Pompeo, would maybe vote for Chris Sununu. They're not going to vote for Donald Trump. So that's kind of the dilemma for the Republican Party. You've got this incredibly powerful message for Republicans from the former president uh, who appeals to Republicans, but I think he's going to have a very hard time appealing uh, across the aisle. Yeah, uh, I mean, he, he did do a speech talking very little about a win in 2016, his loss in 2020, and went on for an hour and a half, and at 78 years old, the one thing they could say is don't worry about it. Whatever you liked or disliked about Donald Trump, he's still all there where there's legitimate right. questions on both sides about Joe Biden. So right. well, they're in a tough spot, uh, but they like the spot they're in, because and they they do want to they do want Trump. Believe me, 
Uh, it seems. Yeah, Jerry mm-hmm. Baker, we're going to watch you on Friday and uh, read your Fr- read your stuff. It's a great column today. It's the hottest. It's the hottest issue in politics. It's uh, the Trump DeSantis would be battle. Uh, go get him, Jerry. Terrific. Thanks, Brian. We come back. Your calls one eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. Then TikTok. Marco Rubio. You're going to be fascinated about what he says is happening at the White House with TikTok. Don't move. Learning something new every day on the Brian Kilmeade Show. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. Every day I think about my brothers and sisters that died in Afghanistan and the family and friends missing them. Mostly I think about the 13 Marines, or the 13 Americans killed at Abbey Gate. Their deaths should not have happened. They should be alive today, and I, like many others, should not be forced to be carried this burden for the rest of our lives. Those of us who served in Afghanistan and our nation as a whole made a solemn promise to stand by them. For over 160,000 Afghans, our nation has failed, failed to live up to this promise. Yeah, I mean, it was unbelievable that it just happened for the first time. We've had military leaders like Milley, uh, and we've had uh, Secretary of Defense Austin come forward and say, yeah, this is, uh, I recommended the president not leave Afghanistan that way, but he did anyway. So when he told me I can only have 1,000 or 500 troops in Bagram, I said, okay, I'm going to have to give it up. And that would mean, of course, that Kabul is where everyone's going to have to go. I had no, they didn't make any arrangements. It was State Department's job, they say, to make arrangements for everyone else to leave. The State Department says, no, it wasn't. Uh, That's Defense Department. So uh, when they actually did leave, and I don't want to go through the play-by-play of it. You've been through it before, especially on this show. But there's been no people on in front of Congress, in front of a national audience, to explain what it was like on the ground and how preventable all this was. And focusing on the 100,000 they got in there quickly to get all these people out of Afghanistan. You remember the video of all the Afghans running after the cargo jet, many of which would fall off the wheels to their horrible death, uh, some of which would get in the back, would have no idea who they are. And we know this. It was up to retired men and women who have served to pull together their money, resources, and expertise to get our allies and Americans out. And the Afghans... uh, I mean, they were killed by the, the by the thousands because the Taliban took back over. We left the country worse than we found it, if that's indeed possible. And now they are a terror haven. And this is because Joe Biden said we got to get out. And the State Department he looked at to do it. And the State Department ran for the hills and left everybody else behind. They actually just left. They left the copiers on, the computers on. They just left. And that was some of the testimony. You're going to hear that throughout this hour. I'm going to play some of it when we get back. 
and how preventable this was. You remember the terror attack? They had the guy in their sights. They knew exactly who it was. They saw his belt. They couldn't get permission to blow him up, so he blew us up. Uh, you listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. In 15 minutes, Marco Rubio, and we come back, we'll take your calls. 1-866-408-7669. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Those of us who served in Afghanistan and our nation as a whole made a solemn promise to stand by them. For over 160,000 Afghans, our nation has failed, failed to live up to this promise. A number of Afghan allies have come to the United States, but over 80% of the Afghans who stood by us at great risk to themselves and their families remain left behind. And I hate to bring this up. It's such a terrible time in our in our past, but it's so... It's a moment that should have happened two years ago where Republicans in charge, they finally are bringing people out. They were there those weeks of evacuation at Bagram, not at Bagram, but at Kabul Airport. The decisions that were made on the ground and not to not to let them leave the wire, uh, so-called behind the wire, and go get people out there while other countries were able to do it. Not informing NATO that we were leaving, even though they had thousands of troops on the ground. And this is the most agonizing they knew they they had the terrorist in their crosshairs. They knew exactly who it was, but they couldn't get permission to pull the trigger. Permission to pull the trigger. Instead, the ball bearings explode. This guy's turned to smithereens, the suicide bomber, and 13 Americans die. Dozens are wounded. Hundreds of Afghans die in this packed airport. They knew all about it. It was totally preventable. Here's a, and this was some of the testimony yesterday. The chairman of Allied Airlift 21, a private organization, had to leave their jobs, empty their accounts to help out because our government didn't. Cut 13. Thousands of us guided tired and scared Afghan families through crowds and Taliban checkpoints. The weight of this work was crushing. We left jobs, drained savings, reopened old wounds. We looked in horror as our screens filled with images of violence and desperation outside the gates of Kabul airport. We wept as we listened to messages left by children pleading for our help. Nine times out of 10, our efforts failed. But every success was a family saved, a promise kept. Hundreds of volunteer groups, including Allied Airlift 21, were responsible for getting thousands of people into Kabul airport and safety. So they cite that. What a successful evacuation. Admiral Kirby, what a successful evacuation. Unbelievable for a military guy, even though he's just a spokesperson, to say things like that. I mean, it's so here's this, this the Marine sniper that you heard from before. He said he detailed how military leaders ignored his warnings minutes earlier and how those stationed at the airport were told not to engage this terrorist. Even though the Taliban were shooting people trying to get on a plane, they were told not to shoot the suicide bomber who they found out who he was before he acted. And that's some of the testimony yesterday. Riveting and so preventable. And I would argue if they don't do leave Afghanistan, the Russians don't go into Ukraine. 
because the American presence is there. We don't look anemic and embarrassing when we left. We don't look like we're evacuating and re- and re- retracting. Instead, we look at we would have looked like a country that's still in possession of the two terror co- countries responsible for most of the terror uh, terrorizing that went on the regions over in Iraq, over in Syria, and over in Afghanistan. So uh, that's just some of the some of the investigations we saw yesterday. We also saw this. Uh, looking at the origins of COVID-19. So Dr. Robert Redfield, so interesting. This guy is head of the CDC, so as important a person during the pandemic as there is. But Anthony Fauci's bigger. When it became clear that Dr. Robert Redfield did not subscribe to the lab leak, they did not subscribe to this being a natural occurrence of a bat virus, and it was most likely a lab leak, Fauci boxed him out and left him out of the brain trust and decision-making. Listen to how what Robert Redfield Learn to know. Cut one, Cut 14. In early to mid-January, I did have multiple calls with Fauci, Farrar, and, and, and Tedros about how important I thought it was that science get engaged in, in aggressive, aggressively pursuing both hypotheses. I also expressed as a clinical virologist that I felt it was um, not scientifically plausible that this virus went from a bat to humans and became one of the most infectious viruses that we have for humans. And he decides, okay, I just won't talk to you anymore. Cut 15. Why do you think you were excluded from those calls? I, I, because it was, I was told to me that uh, they wanted a single narrative and that I obviously had a different point of view. This was a narrative that was decided that they were going to say this came from the wet market and they were going to do everything they could to support it, to negate any discussion about the possibility that this came from a lab. So you understand the frustration with people like Governor DeSantis. Uh, they were getting these messages. They know what Trump was saying. He was being diminished by his medical professionals. Fauci at that time was uh, thought to be walking on water. He's got this great history, so likable, great delivery, very conversational, until he put, turned out to be a blatant partisan with his own personal agenda. And he just decides, I'm going to go right to Jared Kushner. I'm going to go right to my own scientists. I'm going to get people involved. And after three months of a shutdown, which he didn't want to do, Open came the beaches, open came the schools, open came the businesses, game on. And he got the criticism. He couldn't care less. But that's one of the reasons he won by 20 points. He trusted the people. Give him the best information, the best thing you could do with the vaccine, the best thing you could do with therapeutics, and live your life. That's all people want. Jonathan's in Daytona Beach, Florida. Hey, Jonathan. You just went up. Brian, everything you just went over is exactly why I need you to do me a favor and pass this on to Trump and DeSantis. They need to have a private phone call so we can have a thousand percent for sure victory coming up in the next presidential election. They need to team up right now, not wait for the traditional time and say, this is going to be my vice president. They need to team up right now and go forward with this pitch right here. If you want 12 years of success, if you want 12 years of prosperity, If you want 12 years of getting rid of corruption, if you want 12 years of fixing all these problems that Brian Kilmeade does such a great job of pointing out, then you need to vote for Trump DeSantis. The two of them teamed up instead of going at each other will guarantee us a 1,000 percent victory with that pitch, that message of 12 straight years of prosperity. You're the one that can pass that on. I can't get a voice to Trump or DeSantis, but you can because you have the connections. All right, I'll think about it. I don't think they'll listen to me, but uh, they're both number one guys. I could see Nikki Haley. I could even see Pompeo. Uh, I can't see Sununu. 
Uh, I think they're both number one guys. I think the Governor DeSantis would probably not run rather than be number two. In many ways, it would be a step down. You got the most powerful, the most uh, you know, the most powerful state in the union, the most respected state in the union by both parties, and then you give it up to be number two to President Trump, who uh, you, he needs a true number two. I don't know if Governor DeSantis is one to take orders, especially if he doesn't agree, and they disagree on some things, not fundamentals, but on some things. We'll see. Um, I think he'd rather not run than be number two. But what do you think? one 866 We'll keep it in Florida. Actually, Washington, but a guy elected in Florida, Senator Marco Rubio with us. When we come back, why we should not be deceived by the bill coming out of Washington that says TikTok is going to be banned. That's not what they're doing. We'll give you the truth when we come back. Newsmakers and newsbreakers. Hear it first on The Brian Kilmeade Show. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. Could the Chinese government, through its ownership of ByteDance, that owns ByteDance U.S., if they wanted to, and, and, and ByteDance U.S. were willing to cooperate or forced to cooperate, could, the, could they use TikTok to control data on millions of users? Uh, yes. Could they use it to control the software on millions of devices, given the opportunity to do so? Yes. This is a tool that is ultimately within the control of the Chinese government. And it, to me, it screams out with national security concerns. All intelligence uh, heads were there on Capitol Hill giving their assessment of the threats facing America, China number one, uh, and of course TikTok, the most popular app in the country, especially by the youngest people in the country. Uh, it's the, no one's really seen algorithms this successful before, and, but it's time to take it down. And many people believe the Restrict Act does that. But joining us now to say it does not, Senator Marco Rubio. Senator, we heard your question and answer. Uh, first off, can you tell our listeners even though they love TikTok, why it's got to go. Okay, so who owns TikTok and who controls it? TikTok is owned by ByteDance. It's a Chinese company. Chinese companies are not like American companies. Chinese companies are completely controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. For example, the Communist Party has one of the three board seats. The Communist Party gets to pick who the chairman of the company, ByteDance, is. Uh, they, they got rid of the previous chairman and put someone else they wanted there. Uh, insiders have told us that, that they are controlled out of Bite dance in China, what TikTok does, and they have to do whatever they tell them to do, both practically speaking, and the law, the National Intelligence Law of China, passed in 2017, says every company in China has to do whatever the Chinese Communist Party tells them they need from them, and they've told them to do things already. They've told them, for example, to promote videos on TikTok that attack politicians that are tough on China, and make sure that those politicians' videos don't get seen. They make it look like real news stories. Uh, they don't tell you that, but they put that on there. Um, they've done that. They've, they've actually used TikTok to track journalists. And I think people need to understand that if you have TikTok on your phone or device, TikTok has access to your pictures, to your videos, to everything you've ever typed on it, to everything you do on other sites, all of your contacts, your passwords, your usernames, uh, every text you've ever sent, um, all of your locations, even if you turn off location device. In fact, TikTok has the ability to evade both the Google and Apple App Store security features and do all this on your device. And all of that is sent back to what insiders tell us and whistleblowers have said is the master administrator who's an organization or a group in China that has access to all of this and that China will one day use 
uh, in a time of conflict or to divide our country or to drive narratives that are pro-China and anti-American or to interfere in our elections and go after candidates. Look, China cares a lot more about the millions of people who are voters and everyday Americans than they do about political figures like me. They're not going to change my mind, but they can start dealing uh, with our people over years by you know, controlling the videos you see and learning more about you than you know about yourself. And this bill that was filed, the Restrict Act, it's called, and it has, you know, Republicans, unfortunately, have signed on to it. It's not a TikTok bill. I mean, I, I appreciate the effort, but it's not a TikTok bill. It is what the White House doesn't want to do anything on TikTok. The, the Commerce Secretary said, you know, if we do something on TikTok, voters under 35 will punish us. The White House does not want to deal. They have the power to deal with TikTok. They don't want to do anything on TikTok. And what this bill does is it gives them the ability to say, hey, Congress passed something, and it's bipartisan, and it gives the illusion of action, but it's not action. And in the end, very specifically, the bill says that um, if a transaction is under CFIUS review, it slow walks it. It slows it down. It makes it hard. to. You can't do anything until that process is over TikTok is in CFIUS review right now. This bill is not a TikTok bill. It's, it's, it's designed primarily to give political cover and never do anything about it. So if you're if it's under a review right now, it should be. You're saying that in, if the letter of the law is followed, it should be slowed down and diminished until it, it emerges. Correct? No, it's the reverse. So right now, what the law basically says is as long as you're undergoing the CFIUS process or if you've gone through it and passed, that's it. You can't do anything about it. So right now, because as long as TikTok can keep themselves in CFIUS review, which CFIUS might allow TikTok to happen because the rules of CFIUS are very tightly written. Um, I, I don't believe CFIUS rules – a deal with something like that. Like, was designed to like buy a company that made things in America. That's what it was designed to deal with. That, that, you know what passed Sifius review? That that purchase of that facility in, in North Dakota that, oh. that the Chinese were going to buy by a military base. Sifius approved it because um, it, it, the the limitations of this current CFIUS law did not allow them to prevent it from happening. But as long as you're in CFIUS review, um, you, know, you we can't do anything about TikTok. Look, the president has the power right now to act. He doesn't want to do it. And all this law does is codify the power he already has that he's not using. It, it's, it's, a, it's a fig leaf. And part of it could be, you know, because of China, and it, it, so certain times he looks so weak on China, and other time, or it could be just because he doesn't want to use lose the youth vote no doubt about it. I'm, watch, uh, I'm watching uh, people with nose rings talking to President Obama in the last midterm election, and he's talking to a TikToker. I'm watching President Biden embarrassing himself talking to a TikToker, inviting him into the White House because he wants that vote. He wants to be seen by them. I want you to hear what Senator Mark Warner, a Democrat who gave me great hope that he took this as serious as you did, and he's got a pretty good cyber background. Cut 29. My friend Marco Rubio and I both think that TikTok is a national security threat. Remember, we've got 100 million Americans that spend on average 90 minutes a day on TikTok. Um, TikTok and, and, and ByteDance that owns it, um, based on Chinese law, has to be first and foremost responsible to the Communist Party of China, which is, I believe is a national security threat. And they collect data from Americans, and they potentially can manipulate the videos that you see on TikTok, which could turn into an enormous propaganda uh, uh, machine for the Communist Party of China. He sounds as serious as you. Combined, can you get to the White House and say, guys, get serious about this or I'm going to go public? If you two both called a press conference to express what's going on, I think people would really take notice. 
Yeah, so Mark and I agree that this is a threat. In fact, I don't think anybody on the intelligence or national defense committees would disagree. You don't hear anybody out there arguing in Congress that this is not a big deal because you know exactly not just how they're using it, but how they plan to use it, okay? I think where we kind of divert paths is what do we do about it? I believe we should ban TikTok. I believe we should pass a law that basically says that companies like this are not allowed to make money in America as long as they are owned by a foreign, by a company under the control of an adversary and a foreign government like the government of China, like the Communist Party of China. I think we just need to pass a law that doesn't. We don't have time to dither with this as they continue to grow the number of people on TikTok and our exposure to them. And the longer this goes on, the harder it's going to be to fix. You know, Mark's bill, I think his intentions are good in terms of how he views the whole thing, but his bill will not ban TikTok. It will not. In fact, it's not a TikTok pickup bill at all. It doesn't. It, it really is a broader bill so that talks about. Does he know that? North... Well, I think that's what the White House wants, and so I think he's trying okay. to offer a bill that the White House will be supportive of, and that he thinks he can get passed from House because there are some Democrats that don't want to go against it. Look, Democrats use TikTok. Okay, a lot of Democrat candidates, a lot of Democrat uh, office holders have. TikTok accounts. My opponent in the Senate race used to put stuff on TikTok every day. You talked about the White House inviting TikTokers in. I mean, Democratic political operatives believe that TikTok, the app, is politically advantageous for them. And so they kind of want to look tough on China, but they don't want to crack down on this website because they're using it and, and, and they think it benefits them, even though it's hurting the country. And so I think what Mark is trying to figure out is, you know, how can I write a law that the White House will say they're for, um, but also, you know, at least gives us the claim that we're trying to do something. I think it's intention. I don't question his motives or intentions at all, but I can tell you what the law is. The law is very specific. That bill is very specific. As it is written right now, it will not ban TikTok, and it will probably make it impossible to ever ban TikTok. The only bill that has bipartisan support and in the House and in the Senate is our bill, my bill, with Angus King here in the Senate, that straight out bans TikTok and says companies that are controlled by the Chinese Communist Party cannot run social media apps in America that collect on our data and use it to you know, shape public opinion against yeah. our country here in America, convince young people that their country's an evil country and that China's yeah. right, and worse, you know, collect all your data and use it. You know, what are we going to do 10 years from now when the 13-year-old's Today, they have all this data on now serve in the military. They have access to all your personal information, and we're asking you to go off and potentially fight a war against China, but your bank account and your credit cards back home don't work because China has targeted you. you know, what are we going to do when that day comes? It's all, that's, what right. just, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, Senator, just be relentless in doing this. I think people would really understand uh, and, and need to know. Uh, Senator Marco Rubio, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Uh, so that's truth about what's going on. You may love TikTok. But you should like your country more. From high atop Fox News headquarters in New York City, always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. we got a big hour coming your way. Uh, Jonathan Ward's going to be with us in a matter of moments. Wrote a great book. Sadly, is uh, coming so true. The author of China's Vision of Victory. Uh, founder of Atlas Organizations, and uh, uh, Zana Garg will be out here, too. Outstanding comedian, just headlining all across the country. Uh, 1-866-408-7669. We come to you from Midtown Manhattan, heard around the country. Uh, and special thanks to everyone who came out in Tampa yesterday. A lot of New Yorkers were out there, too, who relocated. A lot from California as well. Had a chance to meet a lot of them, too, uh, doing those live shows and doing the radio show out there. Back in action today. So let's get to the big three.
Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. There needs to be a, a an individual who is dedicated to do the decompression strategy for the federal government. It is often stated that it's the role of the VP. That's too much in her portfolio to be focused on just doing that decompression strategy. Believe me, she's not doing anything uh, for the border, but it's just kind of cute that Mayor Adams says it's too much for her to handle. She's already shown that, Mayor Adams, but add him to the list of subtle critics. Number two. For over 160,000 Afghans, our nation has failed to live up to this promise. The withdrawal was a catastrophe, in my opinion. And there was an inexcusable lack of accountability. Yeah, I would say so. Uh, That is one of the officers on the ground talking about the disaster in Afghanistan. Let the investigations and examinations begin on Biden's two years in the White House. uh, Get the scrutiny up in Afghanistan. What happened? The origins of the China versions. How did it happen? We look at the facts and separate that from what we're living with. Number one. The White House says the new budget will zero in on expanding the economy, lowering costs, protecting Social Security and Medicare, and it will also reduce deficit by $3 trillion over the next decade. Dead on arrival. Thank goodness. I'm talking about the president's budget formally rolled out today, jammed with increases in green dreams. We look at where the focus should be. But first things first, uh, when we talk about focus yesterday, all our intelligence heads were on Capitol Hill to give us an assessment of our biggest threat. And far and away, the biggest threat was China, from Avril Haines, the DNI, from Christopher Wray and the FBI to the CIA. They all agree. Jonathan Ward was there a long time ago, author of China's Visions of Victory. Jonathan, we heard a lot of bluster from the from President Xi today against us directly, not through the government owned media. Are we getting to them or are they just getting more belligerent than ever? Well, Brian, they're out in the open about it now. You used to have to read Chinese language to hear these kinds of statements, but today they're making this the main message to America. I mean, this is what Xi Jinping said um, you know, just this week. The Western countries led by the United States have implemented an all-around containment and suppression strategy, bringing unprecedented severe challenges to our development. And then he had his foreign minister essentially threat, threaten the United States with uh, conflict and confrontation, saying there will surely be conflict and confrontation um, regardless of the guardrails that the U.S. is trying to put in place. So this is pretty open um, hostility. Yeah, so here's Avril Haines, the DNI director, Cut 27. In the short term, the CCP continues to take an increasingly aggressive approach to external affairs, pursuing its goal of building a world-class military, expanding its nuclear arsenal, pursuing counterspace weapons capable of targeting U.S. and allied satellites, forcing foreign companies and coercing foreign countries to allow the transfer of technology and intellectual property in order to boost its indigenous capabilities, continuing to increase global supply chain dependencies. So he's citing it, and then we're listening to it. In a way, we seem to be wising up to it. We watched Germany make a statement about not putting lethal weapons into Ukraine. Uh, We're talking there's a huge movement for Democrats and Republicans to get rid of TikTok, to notice they're buying up land around military installations to get them out of our schools and charter and uh, boarding schools. Uh, And we're and we're seeing this more and more. Are we beginning to get it and threaten them or what do you how do you see this? 
Well, I think the free world is waking up to the threat posed by communist China. I mean, that's starting in America. It's become bipartisan. Um, the allies get it. I mean, many of our allies in Asia get it from Japan to our partners in India. I mean, the world is starting to appreciate this picture. But the problem is we have to act faster. It's one thing for us to be talking about this. It's another for us to take action and revise our strategies and get moving. Uh, we're already behind in this competition. They're leading us in critical technologies. Their global trade strategy is, um, you know, succeeding um, you know, tying com uh, countries closer to their supply chains, and you still have Wall Street pouring money into China, and you still have American companies planning expansions in China, including major household names uh, such as Nike and, and Starbucks. So, you know, we, we are, um, I think, talking out of two sides of our mouth here when the business community is still looking at a billion customers and the national security community and uh, D.C. and other allied capitals understand that this is a, probably the most important national security threat of our lifetimes. So, I mean, we are expanding our bases in the in Guam. Uh, Philippines is inviting us in for a greater presence. Japan has doubled their defense budget. They now are have a reapproachment with South Korea to get rid of their differences, to unite around the China threat. Are you encouraged by that? I think that's all great, but the bottom line is we have to win an economic competition, too. At the end of the day, um, the, the fate of history turns on economic power. That's our story in the 20th century. We became half of the world's economy after the Second World War and, you know, had an American century. And today we are watching um, China close the gap with us economically, and we've got to stop that. So we um, really have to move towards economic containment, um, towards um, getting our supply chains out of there, getting our capital out of there, and stop uh, transferring technology, and that has to happen across the entire um, alliance system so that American capitalism can win against um, this adversary state that steals from us and, um, you know, converts all of that into military power. Well, here, here's uh, more of what Avril Haines had to say, Cut 25. And you may have she, seen Xi's recent criticism during his speech on Monday of what he referred to as America's suppression of China, reflecting his longstanding distrust of U.S. goals and his apparent belief that the United States seeks to, quote-unquote, contain China. And Xi's speech this week was the most public and direct criticism that we've seen from him to date and probably reflects growing pessimism in Beijing about China's relationship with the United States, as well as Xi's growing worries about the trajectory of China's domestic economic development and indigenous technology innovation, challenges that he now blames on the United States. Right. Uh, they blame COVID, which they started on the United States. One of the, how, how set back are they by the way they handle COVID? And by the way, Brian, they blame the balloon incident on us, too. They're saying it was a weather balloon and that we're being hysterical. And they said that to Tony Blinken at Munich. So, you know, they, they blame it all on us. And Xi Jinping has been positioning the People's Republic of China for confrontation with the United States since the beginning of his time as chairman of the Communist Party. And he's inheriting um, the struggle against America that comes from the founders um, of the People's Republic of China, from Mao Zedong onwards. So uh, so this is not something that we created. We tried to engage with China. We tried Tried to do business with them. We believed that that was the the right approach, and it's led to the growth. No, I, I hear you, but for now, but for now, how set back were they by COVID? I, th I think somewhat. I think it's changed the way that companies look at China's supply chains, even if they're still planning expansion in that market. Um, so that matters. But they're going to have 
or at least um, many uh, Wall Street institutions expect they're going to have a big rebound um, having relaxed uh, zero COVID policies. So, so I think they've been um, a little more inward looking. It's allowed Xi Jinping to uh, play political narratives of confrontation with the world, which has always been a Communist Party strategy. Um, but at the same time, I mean, if we don't really change course in the economic relationship, um, you know, their, their manufacturing, their share of global manufacturing has actually increased uh, during COVID. And, and so has our supply chain reliance in certain regards. Yeah, this is uh, pathetic. Uh, we got to have a massive all hands on deck, and I think you might get bipartisan support by it. You're getting in certain states. Uh, Governor of Florida is already moving. They're going to forbid them from buying land there, uh, get them out of the schools. I also think we got to focus on the, where these grants are going to these colleges. There's, that should be going through a some type of CFIUS process, don't you think? Why, why are they giving millions of dollars to these universities? Well, look, I mean, you know, universities really should be cutting their ties with the Communist Party of China I mean, at, at this point. You know, for those that value academic freedom and human rights, I mean, it's very clear um, the nature of that regime, and that should be not something that anyone's engaging with. Um, so, so you know, Communist Party influence is something that um, I think endowments should be careful of, and, and deans and such should should really have a hard look at um, their relationships with, um, with that government if they have any. Uh, but the main thing, Brian, is we've got to get our private sector on the right side. Right you. now, the private sector is running in the wrong direction here, and we can't win this without them. Well, I do hear, uh, I do hear that Nike is uh, beginning to pull the manufacturing out to a nearby country, as is Apple to a degree, uh, starting to get it, as is Adidas starting to get it. And I just think, even if you're thinking to yourself, you don't have to think red, white, and blue. Look at the directions of these two countries. If it become, if it, it might become untenable to do business there, rather than sucking it up. Uh, politically, it might be just uh, impossible to do it because the relations are going to get so bad between the two countries. And I think also, what do you think they picked up out of Afghanistan? Excuse me, not out of Afghanistan, out of Ukraine so far. What, what do you think their lessons learned are? Well, I think on one hand, they get to watch Western weaponry against Russian weaponry. So it's, a, um, in that sense, a, a laboratory for them to observe how modern warfare works. And are they concerned about the javelins and the high moors? Absolutely. I mean, they can see all of that on display, and I think that helps them with their own planning. Um, you know, so so that's important to them. And at the same time, um, the deterrent effect, if any, will be the the power of Western sanctions. I mean, that that really uh, we've learned how to create um, you know state killer sanctions. I mean, things that have a real strategic mm-hmm. effect on a, a much larger economy. I mean, Russia is a much larger economy than Iran or North Korea and other places that we've sanctioned. So. You know, it would require um, an ever, you know, much greater lift to apply those sorts of things to China. However, um, you know, we just took a big lesson for ourselves there, and I think they see that we can be coordinated on that. Right. Uh, I think that is uh, the West is beginning to realize. Hey, Jonathan Ward, uh, author of China's Vision and Victory, thanks so much. Thank you, Brian. All right, one 866 I'll come back, take some of your calls. we got a busy day. Also, we're tracking what's happening right now, a long-awaited of the Twitter files. Elon Musk bought Twitter, asked a few journalists to come in and analyze some of the communications at one place, some of the FBI uh, demands that took place, uh, some of the lawmakers who are writing to Twitter demanding certain sites be taken down and tweets uh, be canceled uh, and Twitter users be canceled. Now we're watching Matt Taibbi, Michael Schellenberger and others and maybe Elon Musk come out and, and talk about the Twitter files. This is part of the weaponization of America, weaponization of uh, uh, the weaponization of government that is uh, chaired by Jim Jordan. Brian Kilmeade Show.
Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. One of the biggest challenges we have is the disappointment of the president being so delayed in doing his budget. That harms the economy, too. So here's Jody wanting to have already worked on. The president's more than a month, a month behind. The CBO says it's going to take him time to analyze that budget once it comes out. We want to analyze his budget based upon the question you asked, too. Where can we find common ground? So we'll analyze his budget, and then we'll get to work on our budget. But unfortunately, the president being so far delayed delays us in this process as well. Yeah, so here we go. Uh, the president's going to ask for this today in Philadelphia, a tax rate increase for those higher earners from 37% to 40%. Oh, yeah, that's the problem. The people who are the most productive aren't giving enough. If uh, you earn $1 million, your tax rate increases on long-term investments from 20% to 39%. The corporate tax rate, that affects everybody from entry level to the CEOs, 21% to 28%. We become lack no, no longer competitive compared to other nations. That means businesses don't come here. Jobs aren't gained here. Biden is also proposing a 25% billionaire's tax, a minimum tax on the richest uh, richest 0.01%. Okay. The new budget will close a loophole that allows some wealthy investors with pass-through businesses to avoid paying tax on their investments. So at one point, the rich, most successful, the most productive are going to say it is not worth it. I am not saying they should be paying 0% tax, but the way our system is set up now, if you earn your money, you could actually set yourself up to get a salary and put your money into a separate account. You want to work out some way to equitably do that, but I don't want to just take money from people because they're successful. A millionaire's billionaire's tax is exactly that. And it just, to me, makes no sense to continue to go down this road, especially when 49% of the country pays no tax except for what they buy and what they're taxed on after they buy. So the president's going to come out. i got to give the, the Republican House some credit. They are going to come out with their own budget. You heard Kevin McCarthy just now. Here is what Joe Biden is expanding on. Oh, I can't even listen to him. Here, here he is uh, talking to firefighters and claiming that uh, he is for a free market economy, but he just thinks billionaires are the bad, bon- the bad guys. Cut three. I'm a capitalist. You want to go make a lot of money, go do it, but at least pay something. So we put an incredible burden on them. We made them pay 15 percent tax. That's less than you, you got. You guys pay a hell of a lot more than that. And guess what? We were able to afford everything and still cut the deficit. Cut the deficit after the pandemic spending. We all know that. And he's just I, I just love the way he panders to these so-called working class Audiences, the firefighters, I guess, we would consider working class, changes his tone, starts yelling more, acts outraged. Believe me, you got three houses. And by the way, we're not even talking about something else. They pulled nine boxes to the FBI out of his office in Boston. He had offices in Boston, his lawyer's office, I should say, in Boston. What is that about? What did they find in Delaware University of? What did they find in Rehoboth, his house? What do they find at his other house? What do they find in his offices that led him to his lawyer's house? I mean, this thing is getting big, and they don't even want to talk about Mar-a-Lago anymore because of it. So Joe Manchin is acting responsible, at least speaking responsible words. 
said this about what they really should tackle with the debt ceiling. Yeah, raise the debt ceiling, but you got to find a way to cut spending. He appeared with Senator Braun last night, and he appeared with Brett. Cut five. I came in 2010. National debt was $13 trillion. $31.5 trillion today. Never in the history of our nation, or probably any nation, has accumulated this much debt this fast. When you break it down per person, that's $94,000 a person in the United States of America. $94,000 per person. Interest this year, $600 billion. If we do nothing, the trajectory we're on right now, if we don't step up and someone says, listen, we can't continue on as a nation, we'll have $130 trillion of debt by 2050. You'll be paying $5 trillion a year for interest. You will not be a superpower. This country will not be a superpower. The reserve currency of the world will not be the U.S. dollar. And he's 100% true. And what I just heard this stat, that right now with interest rates going up, our interest payments that we make every month will be more than we pay for the defense budget. Tell me, if you were president of the United States, you could get together, find responsible Republicans that feel that way. Obviously, there's a lot of them. You appear together and talk about the need to tackle the deficit. And if all these ideas don't work, you could at least say, this is what I tried to do. This is what I need to do. This was my objective. But right now, your objective, vilify the rich, label Republicans, MAGA Republicans, and say they want to shut down the government when they say use the debt ceiling for an opportunity to cut uh, Cut spending at least to the 2019 levels pre-pandemic. So when we come back, we're going to be joined by Zana Garg, an outstanding comedian. You probably saw her on One Nation over the weekend. It's going to be appearing all over the area, including uh, at in Detroit, Westside Comedy Club here, Governor's Comedy Club in Levittown. She's going to be in San Antonio, Texas, huge station there, Stress Factory in New Brunswick, and over the Improv in Florida. Don't move. You listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. So Indian people love to talk about how much they miss home. But the one thing America does better is everything. I mean, I dreamt of coming to America just like Eddie Murphy. So I've been married for 21 years. Thank you. To a really nice Indian man. We're the perfect Indian couple. We do math for fun. I've never said I love you to my husband. I mean, it's only been 21 years. What's the rush? But if he said it to me, I would know he's cheating on me. With a white woman. Where else would he get this nonsense? We've also never had a candlelight dinner. I mean, we came to America for the electricity. That's so funny. Uh, Zana Garg is here, and that was uh, some of her stand-up comedy. Uh, she just started a short time ago, already a huge hit. Zana, welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Namaste, Brian. So excited to be here. So first off, you I mean, it's amazing how busy you are. You did One Nation. That was, that was the highlight. Saturday, yeah. uh, we saw you. But over the weekend, you're booked for the next few weekends, and you just started comedy, right? Well, it turns, In relation to it. It turns out there's a huge market for trashing your Indian mother-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> so that is true. So who do you work with uh, for your material? Like, do you, Are you taking this out of the news? Are you? Yeah, I mean, every, of course, life gives you the material. You live in New York City. America, there's constantly something happening. 
India, you know, uh, Indian politics is very colorful. I start every day with the Indian news. Actually. You do? Yeah, because... Because you were born there. I was born and raised there. So, you know, some things just are a part of you. So right. The Indian newspaper is just a part of my existence. Starts with their news, then the news here. And, uh, you know, life just keeps... Something new keeps happening. And you see the separation between the India culture, Indian culture. Not only do you live it, but you read it. Absolutely. So like, for example, what's hot in India right now? Like, what are the top things in India? I mean, you know, India has a very right-wing government. So everything is about religion and religious stuff. Then the last few years, it's made a move in that way. So they, it's almost breached a comical level, mm. <laughs> you know. And and I'm Hindu, so I'm not mm. like I'm I'm with the majority. But it's it's gone to extremes and it's comical. So that's. There's something about entertainment that is somehow tied into the news. Right. Like there's a one of the biggest Hindi movies is a is a Bollywood movie right now. It's a huge hit. And the woman in the movie is wearing a saffron colored bikini for one of the songs. And like the whole nation is up in arms that she is wearing the Indian like Hindu color. You would never like who would have made that connection? <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, life works out, right? So because they created such a hue and cry, that song that nobody was going to watch now got watched by everybody on earth. Wow. And uh, did, did you have you, what does transfer? What are the, like, the stories in India that are resonating here? Are people talking about? Um, I mean, I think like the whole freedom of speech thing transfers all the time because people get in trouble for saying all kinds of things in India. You have India. cancel culture in India? It's, it's different because it's not here. It's extremely woke. It's like, you you know, it's about offending everybody. Right. There it's pretty much about offending the one religion, the one majority that's running the country. So it's limited in its scope. Right. Because you can say anything you want about other people. You could call people fat. You can call women stupid. You can do all of that. Right. What? what but it's can- not encouraged. That's kind of encouraged. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. On International Women's Day, let me announce, it is okay to call women fat in the mm. news in India. No, but- it's... Look, the things that will get you canceled here don't even register a blip back there. That's just a fact. It's a much harsher world to live in. Right. In America, you we hold ourselves to a much higher standard where we're like, you're, but now it's gotten to another absurd so level crazy. here. It's like, what can you say? Right. You know, as a comedian, that's what you struggle with. What are you allowed to say at some point? But do you really worry? It doesn't seem like for watching you do stand-up, it doesn't seem like you worry too much about that. You can't because whatever you worry about is not what's going to happen. They're going to get you, but it's not going to be about what you thought it was going to be. So, you know what I mean? So Goldie Hawn, you know Goldie Hawn, yeah, right? Yeah, of course. She blasts cancel culture. She says it's ruining comedy. Yeah. Now here's her quote. It's in Variety. She says, I think it's important to stand vigilant on people's behavior and really understand what they're out of, when they're out of line. But I'm concerned about these areas. Suddenly you don't have a, uh, you don't have a job. Suddenly you can't date a woman within the business or you get fired. They're canceling books, classic books that no one can read. I don't like it. There's a mistrust everywhere. So not only is there a cancel culture, but there's to cancel wars now. Schools are politicized. But for the greater good of our children, no one should be doing that. So th- th- is that the buzz before you go on stage with other comedians? Hey, can I say this? You know, well, who's in my audience today? You know, I, I should be worried you about don't it. Care. <laughs> I don't care. Right. <laughs> because I know it's unpredictable. Who Who is the world expert on cancel culture who can guide me anyway? No one knows. Right. No one knows. And I think Every that doesn't comedian, Dave Chappelle show you should walk right through the fire anyway? Exactly. And I think I have faith. I, I, you know, honestly, I have faith 
that my audience understands what I'm trying to say. Right. And I have to leap with that faith. So are the how about the American Indian community yeah. when you were out there and you just said, I let's try to think about uh, what America does better, everything. Does does anyone say, Hey, come on, we don't need that? Well, they can say that and then I'm <laughs> gonna, gonna show anyway. them I'm gonna show them the lines outside the US embassy all over India. People begging and pleading to get in. So you, it's not a matter of what I think or they think. It's right. just a matter of fact. We send so many tech workers in America that even the big corporations are like, we may need to limit the number. <laughs> <laughs> if, we let, if we let every engineer from India in, no one from anywhere else can come in. Also, uh, so Zarna Garg is here. And Zarna, this is another cut from you talking about high school at that great comedy club, Gotham Comedy Club, right here in Manhattan. Cut uh, 47. I have a 13-year-old son. My very handsome 13-year-old son recently started walking to school with a girl. Naturally, I follow them. And my husband has been so impressed. He's like, she's, he's walking to school with a white blonde girl, and you don't have a problem with that. I told him, there's nothing to worry about. It's not like she's going to get into a great high school. Everybody sits next to the Korean kids. <laughs> that is fat. See, there you go. You're not worried about anything. I can't. I can't worry about it. I have to, you know, I'm building my comedy career. And mm. I have complete faith that people understand why I'm doing it. Number one, I need to trash my mother-in-law. Get right. on board, people. It's good for your, th- good for your personal well-being. Yes. This, right. this is therapy that I get paid for. Right. After paying for years of therapy in America, I was like, I'm going to do this the other way. Right. Let's go reverse it. Now, how many kids do you have? Three. Three. So many. I'm Indian. You know, that's our brand. That's your brand. <laughs> yeah. And you like all of them. Uh, no, not equally. Come right, on. right, Come equally. On. We, one we, we, is my favorite, the oldest boy. Come on. He is your favorite. Yeah. And is, are they all on board with this? Mom's away every weekend now. I mean, they they are on board because I still pay all their bills. You know what I mean? Right. Like my my apartment and my home is not a democracy. And nor right. do I claim that it is. It's a monarchy. And I'm the monarch. Right. And the monarch... <laughs> You know what? You can the monarch can do whatever they want. Yes, exactly. Or you know, feel free to figure it out. You know, go try your luck in the big bad world outside. So uh, Mike Birbiglia read an essay of your daughter's. So here is uh, here's the essay of your daughter. This is her kind of pushing you to go do stand up. Yeah, because you're funny. Well, but she knew you were funny before you got on stage, right? People have used the word funny with my name my whole life. But if you're Indian, that means nothing. Funny doesn't make you a doctor. What do you mean? Because we don't know what to do with funny. Yeah, Indian right. people are not comedians. Like, right. If you think of all the Indians you know, they're stressed out all the time. That's how we live. Right. We don't say, don't worry, be happy. We say, don't happy, be worried. <laughs> Here, here's, here's the essay, Cut 48. As she began dreaming of a comedy career, the reality of her current life as a stay-at-home mom sank in. She began to cry and told me it was too late for her. I could not bear to watch her struggle between ambition and doubt. Her birthday was coming up. Although I already bought her a present, I realized what I actually wanted to give her was the strength to finally put herself first and take a chance. I placed little notes of encouragement inside the water dispenser. I asked my family and closest friends to do the same. These friends told her other friends, and eventually I had grown a network of supporters who emailed me their admiration for my mom. 
From these emails, I hand wrote 146 notes crediting all of these supporters that also believed in my mom. Some provided me with sentences, others with five paragraph long essays. Yet each note was an iteration of the same sentiment. You are hilarious, full of life, and ready to take on the stage. On the day of her birthday, my mom unwrapped my oddly shaped present and saw the water dispenser I bought her. She was not surprised as she had hinted at it for many years, but then as she kept unwrapping, she saw that inside the dispenser, there were these little notes that filled the whole thing. As she kept picking out and reading the notes, I could tell she was starting to believe what they said. She started to weep with her hands full of notes. She could not believe the support was real and that everyone knew she had a special gift and believed in her. Within two months, my mom performed her first set in a New York comedy club. Within a year, my mom booked a monthly headlining show at the nation's premier comedy club. I'm not sure what happened to the water dispenser, but I've read the notes with my mom countless times. They are framed and line the walls of her new office space that she rented with the profits she made from working as a professional comedian. For many parents, their children's careers are their greatest accomplishment. But for me, my mom's is mine. That's pretty cool. That's great. Yeah. So you, you were on his podcast? Yes, I was. So, and then he, he read that essay. That's right. Well, how many years ago was that? Uh, last year. That was last year? Yeah. That's almost impossible what you, what you pulled off already. I mean, it's almost, I mean, people wait 10 years to be a headliner. And you, what you've done, that's incredible. I mean, I don't really think about it. You know, it just happened. It's organic. I'm right. telling you, there is a market for, like, making <laughs> Indian jokes, I think, <laughs> that no one knew existed. Did you feel, uh, what was the hardest thing you had to do from the from the person with the sense of humor mm-hmm. to the stand-up comic to deliver? What was the hardest part of it? Um, you know, uh, I would say the hardest part is learning the structure of actual joke telling. So I'm now, I know, a classic stand-up comedian. It's jokes, 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 jokes. So learning to structurally write material in a way that it's delivered like a like a machine gun rapid fire, telling my story in a succinct way like that, took, it's, it's an education. Mm-hmm. And I st- I'm still learning. Every week I take classes, I do lessons, because my audience comes in and I want to deliver the real tightest punch that I can. But things have worked out. Honestly, I, I, America, this is America. This is where it can happen. It's a meritocracy in comedy. It would not have happened in India. I tell you right now, I tell everybody, this can only happen for me in America. I've lived in Switzerland. I've lived in Sweden. I've lived in India, of course, most of my life when I was growing up. It would not have happened anywhere else, only in this country. So why do you think that is? Because in this country, if you're good, people value that above a lot of other things that would have like in India, it would have been, who do I know? And I know nobody. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's, it's, you know, also I think it's interesting, but you have to perform. So you could have, you know, you could have generations of stand up comedy. As soon as you go on stage, you got two or three times. It'll be like, well, Zarna doesn't have it. Yeah. But it is, it is a meritocracy. Comedy is it. Uh, it, uh, it. It's the most um, immediate assessment of like which is why it's hard like you got to be able to take the heat but because I've been doing this my whole life even though not on a stage and I didn't know what comedy as a career was when I first did my open mic I was like white people do this (laughs) (laughs) this is a job I've been robbed of millions right I've been doing this my whole life my whole life somebody gave me a mic and said you say something so you know but I treat every show like a big extended dinner party 
Right. In my mind, that's how it works. They're over at your house, They're and over. he feels like you got to keep the jokes rolling. Exactly, and and why not? You know, and you know, my mother-in-law's done everything to try to stop me. Just so you know that, yeah. Like you know, in America, there's this whole like, where did coronavirus originate? Was it the lab? Was it the bat? I'm telling you right now, it was my mother-in-law's kitchen. It happened there. It happened there, right. and it got out of hand. <laughs> right, and what is her? Uh, and right now, when you told, did you t- remember telling her? Did you do in stand-up? Do you remember her reaction? Was she one of your supporters? Well, or will that blow it if she... Well, she couldn't speak a word of English until last year. And then this year, she just texted me. She's like, I have an agent. She has an agent. <laughs> because she now thinks she's such a big part of my act that I'm going to need her. <laughs> that is so funny. Yeah. Hey, uh, all right. We have a few more minutes with Zarna uh, Garg. By the way, this is where you could see her. Uh, March 10th and 11th, the Detroit House of Comedy. West Side Comedy Club, March 16th and 22nd. Is that right here in New York? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Governor's in Levittown. That's right by my house. That'll be St. Patrick's Day, the 17th and 18th. You have no plans those days? Well, I'm working. That's oh, right. the plan. But that's why. Because I could never, as an Irish guy, I could never work St. Patrick's Day. I'd well, you come my to family. my show and you have a good time. Bring that, your whole That's family. where I could do it. It yes. would be a brand new tradition. Yes. Laugh Out Loud, a comedy club over in San Antonio, the 24th and 26th. The Stress Factory in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Uh, April 6th to 8th, and then the Dania Improv in Florida? Yes. Okay. Uh, April 14th to 15th. This is a busy schedule. Yes. You're going to have a lot of miles at the end of this. Yes. Uh, I have a lot of kids, a lot of bills to pay. I understand, and they're very pricey. uh, More was on her in a moment. Want even more, Brian? Download the podcast at briankilmeadshow.com. Every episode, exclusive interviews on demand. More of Kilmead coming up. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Like, well, what's this girl, Meghan Markle? Seemed like a nice lady. Just complaining. I was like, didn't she hit the light skin lottery and still going off complaining? Acting all dumb like she don't know nothing. Going on Oprah, I didn't know. I had no idea how racist they were. What the f- is she talking about? She didn't know. The royal family. They're the original racists. Because she's complaining. I'm like, what the f- is she talking about? They're so racist. They wanted to know how brown the baby's going to be. I'm like, that's not racist. Because even black people want to know <laughs> how brown the baby going to be. So that obviously is Chris Rock from his live special on Netflix, where at the end of the show, he addressed the whole slap uh, with Will Smith. Did you, we're with me right now. Another uh, uh, star, uh, Zarna Garg, who, by the way, I made a critical mistake. On May 5th and 7th, if you were going to call her or knock on her door, she would not be home. She is going to be on stage in Phoenix, right? Yes. Is that the 6th, 5th, 6th, and 7th? Yes, that's okay. right. Okay. Yes. So, yeah, 5th, 6th. So I forgot the one date uh, along with the other seven that you're going to be doing basically every weekend. What did you think of the special? I don't know if you've watched it, yeah. but it was, a, it was a news event, too. Oh, absolutely. And I think it... Listen, only he can pull off a live special like that. It's very difficult to do it. Most of us who film specials do two, three takes, and we edit the best parts. What he pulled off, really, really difficult. He had the eyes of the whole world on him. And I think he I think he did a phenomenal job. I think he said whatever he wanted to say. And I love how he did it. Right. The ultimate revenge is money. 
Like he got yeah. paid to tell his a lot story. of money. A lot of money. It's like it could not be more all American to me. I mean, right away you think he's going to sit down with Oprah. Or he's going to sit down with Diane Sawyer. He's like, why would I give them ratings? No, I'm going to wait. And the longer he waited, the bigger story it was. For you, you're doing a streaming special. You don't know what platform yet, but what, do, you, do you have the venue set? It's oh yeah. I mean, we already shot. Oh, it. you shot it. It's shot. It's edited. I know the platform, but they're going to make the actual announcement. It's going to be very special. They're very excited about it. My special is going to be called One in a Billion. And, uh, it's, it's great. Coming in two months. All right. So funny. We I was talking to one stand-up. He was, got a problem. Netflix didn't like some of his content. Yeah. So he said, I'm just going to do it myself. Yeah. And he made more money doing it himself. Absolutely. And that's the key. And your kids got to go to college. So it's all about Zarna getting money. <laughs> Zarna, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan. It's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moment to the Brian Kilmeade Show. 1 866 408 7669. Happy to be coming to you from 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan, where winter is still holding on. I did think for a while it was summer yesterday in Tampa. It was right 90 and humid, and people were actually outside. And then I realized I'm coming back, and it's still March, and it's not yet spring. But we've had a mild winter, so I'm not complaining that much. David Bonson's here, founder and managing partner of Chief Investment Officer for the Bonson Group. And Carol Markowitz at the bottom of the hour. Carol's going to be uh, with us. She writes for the New York Post still, is a New Yorker through and through. But when she saw her kids couldn't get back into school, when she saw what was happening with crime and no punishment, she left. Uh, and now she's talking about the damage to kids in her brand-new book called Stolen Youth. Something you could all relate to. Before we get to David, who's kind enough to come into studio, let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Sponsored by Crunch Fitness. Interested in owning your own business in a growing $30 billion industry? Check out Crunch Fitness at crunch.com. Number three. There needs to be a an individual who is dedicated to do the decompression strategy for the federal government. It is often stated that it's the role of the VP. That's too much in her portfolio to be focused on just doing that decompression strategy. Wow, too much in the VP's portfolio? What does she do anyway? That's a diss from Mayor Adams, if you ask me. The state of our border is a mess. He's got a plan, and he does not think the vice president can do it. Uh, Join, count me in to that. Number two. For over 160,000 Afghans, our nation has failed to live up to this promise. The withdrawal was a catastrophe, in my opinion, and there was an inexcusable lack of accountability. Let the investigations and examinations begin on Biden's two years in the White House as scrutiny finally focuses on Afghanistan and the origins of the China virus. We look at the facts from the people that lived them. Number one. The White House says the new budget will zero in on expanding the economy, lowering costs, protecting Social Security and Medicare, and it will also reduce deficit by $3 trillion over the next decade. Well, there you go. That is dead on arrival. Thank goodness. I'm talking about the president's budget formally rolled out today, jammed with tax increases and green dreams. We'll look at where the focus should be. They claim to be uh, cutting the deficit with this. And with me right now is David Bonson. David, welcome back. Hey, good to be with you. So, I I mean, the president wants everyone pumped up to release his budget at 2 o'clock today in Philadelphia. You know, he, he loves going to Pennsylvania, can't get himself to Ohio. So in it, we expect... An increase from the corporate tax from 21 to 21. In it, we expect the the highest tax bracket to go from 37 to 40. What else do you think will be in it? 
And what do you think that will actually result from it? Well, the most important part is that, that nothing will come from it. It's a campaign speech, and everybody knows that. It's dead on arrival. By the way, it's dead on arrival because the Republicans have the majority in the House. That's it. Even if they didn't. This wouldn't get through the Senate. Cinema and Manchin wouldn't be on board with this either. He couldn't get some of this stuff done when he had the House, when he had the Senate. Build Back Better died. So the numbers are really important. I don't get as riled up and angry about politicians lying through this stuff as I probably should because I'm so numb to it. I'm so used to it. But let's just uh, play out the numbers. Three trillion deficit reduction over 10 years. That's $300 billion a year. We're running deficits at about a trillion and a half now. And that's based on the projected increases of spending. So by his numbers, they would barely be making a dent in anything. He's adding to the national debt. That's what it does. When they say reduce deficit, they mean reduce the pace at which they add to the national credit card. But this isn't going to happen um, because there is no way they will get through taxes on investment and taxes on income. It would kill the growth that is so desperately lacking and needed in this economy. What are we growing at now? We're growing basically at half of a percent. Let's call it 1% if we're lucky this year. If we avoid recession, less than 1%. So – As a country, that's a disaster. And it started in 2008 after financial crisis. It lasted all eight years of the Obama administration. One year during the Trump administration, we got up to 3% real GDP growth after his tax cuts were passed. And then uh, COVID came. And I think that we're averaging 1.6% GDP growth for 15 years. Since World War II, we averaged over 3%. We're running at half of our economic growth average. And with this... With inflation not letting go, the rates keep on going up, which means the debt that we owe is becoming more and more expensive. Well, but see, they get to pay back the debt at inflated dollars. And so this is where um, I don't want to be overly wonky or economic, but it's kind of what, what I do. They want inflation. Their problem will end up being, Brian, not that inflation stays too high. It's that they can't get it back up because the growth will be so low and we're stuck in this Japan-like no-growth economy. Now, right now, they're trying to deal with the political backlash of high prices, and they totally emptied out our strategic petroleum reserve to get oil all the way down to $80, right? So, I mean, they got it lower than 100 where at 100 you go to recession, but it's still not exactly low, uh, it averaged about $60 throughout the Trump administration. Uh, we're not producing enough oil. That's what they have to do. But the biggest- and they keep pointing to the profits in the oil and gas companies and saying these guys are making everything worse and making all this money. And uh, we're going to have a windfall profits tax because they're the bad guys. Are they the bad guys? Well, of course not. And uh, their losses in 2020, I would like to see a speech from Elizabeth Warren. I'd like to see a speech from Joe Biden, a speech from anybody on the left saying, oh, my God, this is a windfall uh, profit uh, debacle, a windfall loss, because they all lost 20, 25, 30 billion dollars in 2020 when they shut the world down. Then all of a sudden the profits come back up. They have higher margins. They're not uh, overdoing production. They're not overly levering. They're being good, fiscally responsible actors. Our whole oil and gas industry is behaving itself very well. I'm very heavily invested there. It's something we care about a lot. But But what do you mean by behaving? By not over-levering themselves to the moon, acting as if oil prices are going to be near $80, $90, $100 forever. 
And, of course, they can't get new permits approved. There's high uh, regulation. There's the cultural pressure from ESG, AOC threatening the banks. Don't you lend to them? There's a lot of reasons not to be turning the spigots on. But the biggest is that they can't trust this administration that they will facilitate the kind of production that would be necessary. And and so I think that in the past, the oil companies got ahead of themselves. Uh, oil prices were high in 2014, and they turned on the spigots. Oil prices fell, and they all got hammered. They can't avoid. They can't live in that kind of boom-bust cycle. And I think they know the political environment. That's uh, right. And what do you think – can you put in perspective, if you think it matters – the Willow Project and what it means from Alaska. They're looking to, to get that pipeline going, and it's going to be great for Alaska Democrats and Republicans. Yeah. It's going to be great for our country. But the Biden's on the fence on green lighting it. And green lighting, it's the key word, uh, no pun intended, because it's all he's trying to do is read the tea leaves on what the greenies the environmental movement will say it isn't a huge needle mover. It's big for Alaska jobs. It's important. But as far as a big input to production and transportation of oil, it isn't a needle mover. Yet the Biden administration now is symbolically stuck between who's going to get more mad at them, consumers with higher prices or AOC uh, with her green environmental extremism. Right. And but uh, as people have pointed out to me, political experts, it's actually a good thing if Joe Biden got the left mad at him. Because it might bring in more moderates and independents. We, we saw and that with this crime bill deal. This thing in D.C., I think, was uh, Biden was actually quite smart politicking to get some of the left mattered in there. Yeah, too bad he left them out to dry. If he informed them, they did. he could have got it both ways. But mm. instead, he didn't inform them what he was doing. Uh, what do you think about this? Because a lot of your friends are this, and that's billionaires. He's proposing a 25% billionaires tax. So 25% tax on billionaires would nearly double the capital gains tax rate from 20 to 39.6%. Yeah, and it's worse than that because he's proposing taxing unrealized capital gains as well. So it's it's laughable, and I don't mean to make light of it, but it can't be taken seriously because he has no intention of any of this becoming policy. Um, they are their donors. The Democratic Party donors would would throw a fit. But 15 out of 17 European countries that tried a wealth tax got rid of it. Why? Because they all became fiscal conservatives and they read Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. No, it didn't work. It doesn't raise revenue. Wealthy people figure out how to use the system to not have their money stolen from them. And the wealth tax, just like the estate tax, is a wonderful way to practice tax avoidance. Get your accountants, your lawyers, call people like David Bonson. You're not going to pay that tax. Um, It doesn't work. A couple of things. So we always hear this description. So you're Jeff Bezos, and you earn this money. You took losses for years, and now Amazon's the most successful company in the world, or top three. But he gives himself a $200,000 salary. Mm-hmm. So even though he's worth all this money, if you look at everything that he's built and all the, what he owes, he's getting taxed only $200,000 or $220,000. People say that's unfair. But it isn't true. So, so we could argue if it's fair or not. But how does he have money from stock options that are granted as income and stocks sold as capital gains? So where he earned compensation – in uh, stock grants and co- and uh, uh, incentive-based compensation from stock, that is taxed as ordinary income. And when you have stock that you accumulate and it goes up and up and up and you sell it, even at long-term well, what capital What if you don't gain, sell? You hold. Okay, but so then why? You have no income. You're going to tax something that doesn't exist. So if you say we're going to tax you on something you're holding, does that mean that when it goes down the next year we're going to give you money back? I Believe me, I'm with you. 
uh, they'll, he'll say, okay, I'm going to go up to a bank and say, I need a loan for five. I need mm-hmm. to buy a yacht. Yep. Now, how does a guy who makes $200,000 need to buy a yacht? Because look at what he's worth. So he's able to take out money, when, especially when it was 2%. Or in 3%. Yeah. Buy that yacht, live that high end uh, lifestyle, but not be killed by taxes. But see, he has been, and this is the big lie. Je- uh, uh, Elizabeth Warren went after Elon Musk on Twitter about the things with taxes. Elon Musk is the largest taxpayer in the history of the United States of America. These people have paid billions of dollars of taxes. So the stats don't lie, Brian. 1% of wage earners pay 50% of taxes, 5% of wage earners pay 60%. Okay, so if that isn't paying their fair share, someone just needs to tell me what is. But this is what the Biden administration has done, and I don't want to put all successful people. But I don't want to put it all on Biden. This has been going on a long time about this thing. Buffett used to say, "My secretary pays more taxes." There's no, not even an attempt to justify it with stats, even that are fake stats. They don't even throw out any numbers anymore. It's total nonsense. In our tax code, those people are paying gazillions in taxes. And if someone out there doesn't like that they still get to keep gazillions, then that's fine. People have been hating rich people since God gave us the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. People don't like successful people. But it is not true that they don't pay taxes. Well, you know, it's interesting. I I think for a while, a long time, I don't think that was the case here. Remember – if you look at Wall Street, the movie, Greed is Good, there was a sense that you want to be successful, you want to get forward, that there was an attitude like that. After the crash in 2008, they said that's that a, attitude got us there. That's so, the change. That was the cultural change, and I blame the right for not defending itself or letting the media use a narrative that capitalism caused the financial crisis. It was a lie. Uh, there was a lot of – Irresponsible – uh, capitalism. Well, what I look, I think Wall Street was overlevered. I think Main Street was overlevered. I think Washington D.C. had terrible policies. I think the Fed was reckless. There was a whole lot of actors, <clears throat> but we allowed them to bake in this narrative that it was uh, greed that caused the crisis and government that fixed it. It's very similar revisionism happened after the Great Depression. And it's why I wrote a book, you, you interviewed me years ago, Crisis of Responsibility, saying, you know what? That was a cultural and a moral crisis. That was people on, Wall, on Main Street saying, I'm going to walk away from my house. I'm not going to pay my bills. There was a lot of things that went wrong in 2008. But the fact of the matter is that it allowed Bernie Sanders, who had already been a socialist in Congress for 30 years. None of us had ever heard of him. He became famous after 08 because then that 80s and 90s appreciation for free enterprise, it went away and we hit a cultural moment. And now this is the passion of my life. I want to defend free enterprise on moral grounds, not simply say, hey, it's a better system overall. It is, but it's more than that. It's a better system to honor the dignity of mankind. Right. Uh, regulation for the immoral, but it, it go out and compete. There, there's, a, there's a glory in competing. There is. There's even a glory in loss sometimes and risk-taking. You know, some, some of the greatest successes that I've enjoyed in my life have followed some of the worst failures. Most of us have lived a life like that. If we want to fail, straighten out the budget, if we want to get so-called balance the books, what will we do when 40% of our income goes to automatically Medicare and Social Security and both sides say we're not going to touch it? How can you fix anything in our economy? Is it possible? Don't move. More with David Bonson in just a moment. It's Brian Kilmeade. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Do you believe 2% is still the right target for inflation? 
And given the ongoing energy transition, the push to shift supply chains out of China, and the labor shortage here in the U.S., should the Fed consider adjusting its target to avoid overly burdening Americans? Would a decline to 3 percent inflation be enough to offer price stability without excessive economic pain? No, 2 percent inflation is going to remain our longer-term inflation goal. Are you concerned given all the other factors that I mentioned, or do you think we just have to keep sticking with that? I think that's got to remain our, our longer-term inflation goal. It's the, it's the global standard, and it's our standard, and, and this is not a time at which we can, we can start talking about changing it. We have no instinct to do that. So Jerome Powell let everybody know uh, that he is going to raise rates again because he feels as though the economy wasn't slowing it up enough. So th- the market then dropped over 500 points. With me right now uh, to talk about this is David Bonson from the Bonson Group, where he's uh, the founder and owner and runner. Uh, what do you think of him going for 2%? Is that possible? Well, it, it is. And you, we spent about 13 years trying to get up to 2%. They were trying to create more inflation. And the problem right now is that the Fed is constantly behind the eight ball. They're playing catch up with the data. Uh, housing prices haven't gone up in a year. Rents have gone way <laughs> down. And their models still tell them that housing is adding 6 or 7% to inflation because they're looking at rents or leases that were signed over a year ago, and it's just a very antiquated methodology. It also caused them to undershoot what their inflation read was back in 2021. And so the fact of the matter is that uh, I disagree fervently with the idea that economic growth is inflationary, that people having jobs is a horrible thing, that we have to slow the economy down. Prices go up and become inflationary because of inadequate production of goods and services relative to money supply. Our supply chains shut down. They shut the world down. China wasn't reopened. We couldn't ship things in the country. And all of a sudden, prices went way up. And we were incentivizing people not to go to work, so we had a labor shortage. A lot of those things have corrected. Goods inflation has gone has been 0% for seven months now. And yet uh, Powell talks as if he's determined to put two or three million people out of work. Um, and I disagree with my friends on the left and my friends on the right that think inflation is right. a byproduct of growth. It isn't true. Our Medicare and Social Security, if we don't touch them, can we ever balance the budget or get ourselves somewhat fiscally uh, in line? Never. You will never fix this budget if you don't deal with what we call transfer payments. 61% of the budget, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, Obamacare, food stamps, those payments, some of which as a social safety net our society has decided to have. So let's talk about work requirement. Let's talk about what we want to have a good safety net in society. But no, you are going to have to deal with Social Security. Are you upset that both sides seem to be agreeing not to touch them? I'm upset that our side, the right, my side, as a movement conservative, uh, I don't expect the left to get this right because they get a lot of things wrong. But I do expect our side to get it right. And I believe you have to be willing to talk about Social Security. You don't have to take away anyone's benefit. You don't have to tell people you're not going to get what you're getting. But you know Rick Scott got in trouble for writing that we have to sunset these uh, automatic payment uh, programs. we got to message it right. and We have to be a unified force with a strong intellectual defense of fiscal responsibility. All right. We solve the world's problems, David, if everyone would just listen to you. David Bonson, founder, managing partner, and chief uh, CIO uh, for the Bonson Group. David, have a great day. Thanks so much, Brian. All right, we go uh, inside your kids' education with Carol Markowitz. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show.
We're doing a couple things, Sean. One, just the recognition, you know, I can win a landslide election by 1.5 million votes, and yet the left can still try to impose its agenda through all these other avenues to society. So we recognize that threat more than just what happens in the legislature. Obviously, you need to win those fights. So, for example, uh, we've done things like ban critical race theory in our K-12 through schools, no gender ideology. Of course, we got in the tussle with Disney, uh, but second graders shouldn't be told that they were born in the wrong body. Yeah, what's crazy about that? Carl Markowitz, New York Post writer and author of Stolen Youth. That is, uh, that's the governor she ran to because the governor here, Cuomo, and now Hochul would never do any of those things, nor do they see a problem with either one of those things, I would argue. Uh, Carol, uh, welcome back. Hi, Brian. Thank you so much for having me. Congratulations on the book. Thank you. Um, first off, the education thing, Trump, uh, Trump. I actually think that uh, DeSantis has done more than anybody else to expose it. Even in his Florida, in his yeah. state of Florida, he can't thoroughly control it, even though he's he's attempting to do that now. Yes, I think he's done amazing work. I have two sons in public schools in Florida, and I feel so much safer because of Governor DeSantis's proposals. Um, I think that the things that he suggests, like, I don't know, pulling porn out of elementary school libraries is something that all parents want. It's not anything, you know, far right wing or crazy. This is like sanity. This is normalcy. And it's something that parents in New York and Florida and every other state want. Uh, and do you do you sense that school choice is also helping get that across? That knowing that each year these schools are are, are up for mm-hmm. auditions. Yeah, I, you know I love school choice. I support school choice. But what I really enjoy about Governor DeSantis is that he's not giving up on the public schools. School choice is a, a great idea. It just can't happen instantly. And so while we work on getting better options for for all parents for their children, while we work on you know making more charter schools or making private schools that teach a classical education, I think it's so important to fight for these public schools and say just because we want parents to have options, we don't want to abandon the public schools that most Americans send their kids to. And that's what I really appreciate about Governor DeSantis. And when you say stolen youth, it's because kids aren't allowed to be kids. And what they're being thrown at at a very young age is absolutely uh, ridiculous. We trace in Stolen Youth, our book out this week, the fact that kids are being indoctrinated at every level of society. It's not just schools. It's also libraries. It's also publishing companies. It's also the pediatrician's office. All of these places have been captured by this ideological minority. These super leftists are a tiny percentage of the country, but because they're loud, because they threaten violence, because they get in people's faces, they tend to have more control. And so in Stolen Youth, we talk about how kids are the target for this because it's so much easier to indoctrinate children than adults. And our first chapter is a historical chapter looking at past totalitarian societies that specifically tried to separate the family. And when you hear stories about teachers keeping secrets or asking the kids to keep secrets from their parents, that's exactly what's happening. It's a separation of the family to get to your kids. And are are they being are they effective? Mm, they are effective because kids want to please their teachers. And so we had a situation um, actually out on Long Island like two weeks ago where a teacher, you know, 
convinced this little girl that she was a little boy, started calling her little, you know, boy pronouns and didn't tell the parents. It was a nine-year-old. And the only way the parents found out is that this little girl started drawing pictures of herself, a girl, a little girl picture, saying that she was suicidal and she wanted to kill herself. And that's when the parents finally found out. And what's so important about that story is it was Huntington Station, um, actually, no, sorry, Jefferson Station, which is a, a red enclave. It was in Suffolk County, a red county. And yet this happened there. And if it could happen there, it means that this is not limited to New York City and San Francisco. This is happening everywhere. Project Veritas exposed a East Meadow superintendent talking about their look for gender fluidity and mm-hmm. uh, transsexuals and not telling anybody, not telling school board, just doing it and claiming that every superintendent is doing the exact same thing. Yeah. Well, that's what Governor DeSantis is saying, right? It's it's not enough for there to be a red governor, a, you know, a Republican governor of a red state where all the government officials in, in my state are Republican. Um, it's not enough because these people still think that the kids belong to them and that in their individual systems, they can do whatever they want with your children. And so it's so important that parents recognize what's going on and start this fighting back, because if they don't, these kids really will be lost. I hear so many stories from people who send their kids to colleges and they come back woke and crazy and like depressed and all of these things. This is happening far younger now. And we're going to see these same levels of anxiety and depression in smaller children as they aim their indoctrination at them. Carol Markowitz with us. Her book, Stolen Youth, is now out for any parent. Grab it. Understand what you might be having, what what's, you might have to scale in terms of challenges with your uh, local public school. Do you think the pandemic ultimately will help uh, help parents and help kids in the long run, even if it hurt in the short run? Absolutely. I think that parents saw things that they couldn't unsee. I mean, look, we were going to live in New York forever. We were Brooklyn forever people. And the pandemic opened our eyes to what was happening around us and how conformist New York had become. And the way that our neighbors who all marched for equity didn't say a word when their you know schools closed for the poorest kids in, in the city. And they got their own kids, tutors and pods and private school, and they didn't say anything. And we couldn't unsee that. So I think parents saw things during the pandemic that really opened their eyes. And in ed- education was absolutely at the forefront of that. As the kids sat at the dining room table, the parents saw that they were learning a bunch of nonsense and they said, wow, this is really, it, it, this is not what I want for my kid. And so many people like us made the move to, to saner places. People pulled their, pulled their kids out of public schools, put them in private, homeschooled them, sent them to charter schools. But again, the fight doesn't end there. It, it doesn't mean just because you switched your kid to a private school that you think will be better, doesn't mean that you can now sit back and relax. This is happening everywhere. This is happening all over the place. In the book, uh, Stolen Youth, we trace how teachers get indoctrinated themselves at teachers' colleges. They use Marxist texts for these teachers, and then these teachers get spread around the country and teach it to your kids. It's happening all over the place. Understood. The other thing, which I find New York-centric perhaps, but I did meet people in Florida that are ahead of charter schools for the country, and mm-hmm. there's budgeted schools for, I think, 21 more charter schools. 90% of which are populated by ethnic children, black yep. and Hispanic children, and they will not green light it, even though it's a de- supermajority Democratic in the House in Albany. And you got a Democratic governor, you have a mayor that wants it done, who's Democrat, but they won't do it because the teachers unions get these people elected and it doesn't That's help right. because they're not unionized. That to me is criminal. You cannot say you care about kids and tell them they can't go to a charter school. That's 
really absolutely true. They are in bed with these teachers unions who do not care about your kids at all. These teachers unions have their specific goals, which is to get more money for their schools and their people, and kids are a last priority. Randy Weingarten is singularly the most responsible person for keeping kids out of school during the pandemic, and now she pretends that didn't happen. So these politicians, and you know what I said throughout the pandemic is it's not so much these teachers unions are so strong, it's that these politicians are so weak. They don't stand up for children. It's like the most basic thing in the world that the kids deserve a better education than they're getting. And if there are options for them to get them that better education, how could a politician stand in the way? But they do that because they they rely on these special interest group money from the teachers union. And somehow that's allowed to go on. I think that parents need to really fight this and they need to confront their politicians and say, I'm not going to stand for this. So the uh, you're not kidding when you said uh, Randy Weingarten believes the pandemic, they were great for kids. Unions are better for kids. Decided research from the teachers unions are positively Mm -hmm. associated with student achievement. Uh, The payoff uh, of a union uh, is a bargain for kids. It improves teaching and learning conditions. What they did during the pandemic in most of these cities and not not corrected by the CDC, who was suppli- uh, supplicated to it, mm-hmm. they just kept the schools closed. They they erroneously subscribed to six feet apart. They let these kids learn and not learn from home. And the kids they claim to want to uh, fight for the most, uh, the working class or 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 minority kids in in challenging situations, they disappeared. And a lot of them, no one knows where they are right now. Right. They never went back to school and nobody seems to care. Um, I, you're, you're so right. This, these people are just in la-la land where they think that, you know, just because they say something, that mean, makes it true. I, I, Randy Weingarten is such a villain to me. And the fact that Democrats stand on stage with her and celebrate her, it shows where their priorities are. And it's not with our kids. And the the damage that she did and the damage that the politicized CDC did right. throughout the pandemic we're going to be feeling that for generations. We have a chapter in Stolen Youth on COVID because we felt like that was so important to put down and trace what happened to children during that time and how they were put last again and again and who was responsible for it. I want this in history written down that here are the people that, that were responsible for what happened to children. I hear you. Uh, pick up Stolen Youth. Uh, Carol Markwitz, congratulations. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much. You got it. Uh, so helping out for the New York Post, relocate to Florida, still all over uh, the New York City and inner city situation. When we come back, we'll find out if there's indeed more to know and open up the phones. one 408 7669 Remember, one nation, just 48 hours away. Okay, a little bit more. Uh, coming up Saturday night at 8 o'clock, repeat it again at 11 on the Fox News Channel. Coming to you on a need-to-know basis, because, man, do you need to know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. I'm also challenging musicians to do concerts during the day. You see, why are there no matinees? Matinees, yes. Okay, but seriously, I would love, for instance, I love Coldplay. I would love to go see Coldplay. I would love it. The problem is I'm not going to go see Coldplay if they start their show at 9 o'clock and there's an opening act. 
I want to hear Coldplay at 1 p.m. Yes, 100%. And I think if we filled a stadium of people who want to see a matinee of Coldplay, <laughs> I think we're going to start a prank. So what was that based on? So that was Jamie Lee Curtis. She was on the Today Show, but she was saying basically she likes to go to bed early and that she would like musicians to have matinee concerts so she could actually attend them, you know, because right now she's not going to go see Coldplay at, you know, 9 or 10 p.m. at night. It's too late. What do you like? It's not a bad idea. Well, I mean, if you're, you have to get, I, I guess, is that her age? How old is she? She's on, she's older. I mean, she's not 20 anymore. But I will say, if you go to see some of the comedians too, um, Jamie Lissau does a whole set on like, you know, timing and age and how like an eight o'clock show is way late now. <laughs> so. Really? Yes. Um, funny. Well, my, my thing is with Jamie Lee Curtis in particular Rock and roll, that whole the whole music thing, there's no way. They don't even wake up before 12. If you ever ask these guys doing a morning show, you see a lot of them can't even sing at, at, at 8 o'clock in the morning. By 12, they can't really sing. They, they're there to peak at night. And you got to go where the majority of people are going to go. I mean, if Coldplay, 60 and over. Yeah, but maybe some of like more of like, you know, the rock and roll people now, not, not to offend anyone, the rock and roll people are a little older themselves now, so they might re- maybe like the 2 o'clock show, so they can go to bed early too. <laughs> well, that's true. All right. Uh, meanwhile, just just a uh, just a, a quick note on a serious note. We're just uh, I started the show and we were talking about what happened with accountability. Accountability when it comes to what happened with Twitter. It's happening right now. Matt Taibbi has been on our show. Uh, Michael Schellenberg, who's been on for various things, he, they're now testifying because Elon Musk opened up the Twitter files to them and they've been publishing them. And now the FTC is looking into. I know Michael Schellenberg is all the reporters' backgrounds that did it and also looking at the Elon Musk to see if he did a violation in what? As a private company exposing what was going on there? Well, we're going to bring back some of their testimony on the Friday edition of the show because even in their prepared remarks, it is very enlightening. And Matt Taibbi, as you know, this very esteemed journalist who actually left his magazine, did his own thing, does his own thing now on Substack. They worked for Rolling Stone for a while, New Yorker. And what he's done is he realized how how polarized even news is more than ever when he gets inside Twitter, is told, he's looked at the communication, sees how the FBI, sees how Adam Schiff and Senator Angus King and uh, various Democrats are demanding that Twitter do certain things, take down, shadow ban, ban entirely people that don't are anti-Democrat uh, or uh, not saying the COVID uh, beliefs that they believe or coming across when it comes to Russia investigation, when he saw that they got access to all this information, and many of this stuff is just red hot, great journalistic work, and he saw that CNN, MSNBC, ABC, nobody had any interest in what he was doing. In fact, commentators were saying, this is a big nothing burger. That's when he realized how incredibly sick our uh, our news media is right now, which I include. Uh, I'm obviously in it. You're listening to it. I think I'm clear-eyed about it, but Matt Taibbi was woken up to it. That's why you're going to see him on our channel talking about it, Michael Schellenberg on our show, uh, mentioning it. But we'll talk about that. But also yesterday was the first time in two years outside when they brought in some of uh, the uh, Secretary of Defense and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to talk about what happened in Afghanistan. Now you have people on the ground. Some of the families of the 13 that were killed and some of the dozens that were wounded in the explosion at Abbey Gate in Kabul. And you talked about what this administration allowed to happen. 
pulling out all our troops, leaving everybody behind, then having to quickly put them back in while uh, desperate families tried to get out before these terrorist regime, the Taliban, took over. Listen to Aiden Gunnarsson and Francis Hong uh, talk about the withdrawal as they saw it, as they were asked to help. Cut 10. Every day I think about my brothers and sisters that died in Afghanistan and the family and friends missing them. Mostly I think about the 13 Marines or the 13 Americans killed at Abbey Gate. Their deaths should not have happened. They should be alive today, and I, like many others, should not be forced to be carried this burden for the rest of our lives. Those of us who serve in Afghanistan and our nation as a whole made a solemn promise to stand by them. For over 160,000 Afghans, our nation has failed, failed to live up to this promise. So these veterans came out and spoke. Some of the retired ones, like Scott Mann, were asked to go down there. And they talked about Save Our Allies and the money they took out of their pockets in order to get together these these units to go inside or work with people on the inside to get people on the outside. And when all the exits closed, they had to get them through Pakistan. You had to cut all types of deals with that. So Save Our Allies did some unbelievable work. But what an embarrassment that we had to ask more of our veterans again to go back and help. Because our government just wanted out. Joe Biden doesn't even think about it. You can't bring up Afghanistan, evidently, in the White House. He doesn't want to hear it. And what made it worse, they chronicled that they saw the suicide bomber that killed all those in Kabul. They saw him. They wanted to take him out. He had his vest full of ball bearings and explosives. He was about to blow himself up, and they were about to get him, but they couldn't get permission to do it, so they didn't. And then he ended up detonating himself. And in one case, one of the guys that had a shot at him Lost a leg, lost an arm, and we don't know what else. It's just ridiculous. That's what the legacy and the accountability is demanded. The same time later on, COVID-19, the origins, Robert Redfield, CDC director, described how he was left out of the decision-making process because Anthony Fauci wanted everyone to agree with him that this came from a bat. And when you didn't, you were out. That's pretty terrible. And Joe Biden had nothing to do with it. Why wouldn't Joe Biden weigh in on this? Why wouldn't Democrats be outraged by this? Because they just don't care. I'm not sure why, but they don't care. I do. Brian Kilmeade Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.